Would you bow your heads, please, for a moment? Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, O God, as you will, always for your glory and always for the welfare of your people. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. May be seated. It's hard to believe that this is my third visit to All Saints since I've retired and uh, moved to Atlanta, and now I can welcome a new rector that you all have. I know he's been with you for a while, but this is my first opportunity to meet him and to be uh, with you while uh, he, you are under his leadership as uh, you all have begun that wonderful relationship that you have. But it's great to be here again. I love coming here. The music is absolutely breathtaking. And I just I love to hear the, your choir and uh, to worship with you and to be a part of this community uh, every time I come. As I read the scripture for today from the gospel, I thought, well, you could not have asked for a better setting to do confirmations and receptions and reaffirmations and have all of us together renew our, uh, our confirmation vows. What you find here in the 17th chapter of John is the ending of um, Jesus' period of teaching and preparing the disciples as he had entrusted to them the gospel and the, his knowledge of his father and called them then to go into the world to proclaim that reality and to be present with people in their own journeys of faith. And Jesus ends this whole section of John, which began in about the 13th chapter up through the 17th, he ends it with what we know as the high priestly prayer, where he not only prayed for himself, but he prayed for his disciples, those who were present, and those who were to come like you. And he offered his strength and his power through the coming of the Holy Spirit so that you and I could do the ministry that he has called each of us to do in his name. And so what a great and glorious passage to read as we prepare to confirm and welcome other people into this reality of being disciples of Jesus Christ. 
because every time I come to do confirmation, I always remind the congregation this one thing. You are the ministers of the gospel, not just those who wear funny collars or preside at the Eucharist, but you are the ministers of the gospel. And without you, the gospel cannot spread anywhere in the world. It's a hefty responsibility, but never forget it. Because as you go from this place, your life is a sermon about your reality and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you are called to share that. You are called to be proclaimers of how the reality of Jesus Christ and the reality of his Father has affected you and in your life. Jesus said some very interesting words this morning, I think. You know, for 50, for, for 47 years, I have tried to stand in the pulpits and talk about our need for an ever-developing and strong faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it's fitting and proper that this should be done because there is nothing on the earth that I need more, and maybe you as well, is that faith in Christ. In times of poverty, we need faith in his care and in his provision. In hours of temptation, we need faith in his way of living. In times of moral failure, we need faith in his forgiveness. In days of discouragement, we need faith in his purposes and power. Every day of our lives, in a dozen different ways, we desperately need to believe in Jesus Christ. But today, I want to just for a few minutes reverse the emphasis And I want you to think with me a few moments of Jesus believing in you and me, believing in us. The gospel reading reminds us that Jesus has faith in his followers in the midst of the high priestly prayer which he offered in behalf of his disciples we find this remarkable sentence. I entrusted to them the message you entrusted to me, and they received it. Think of that for a moment. Here is Jesus on the night before his death. His public ministry is almost over. He has poured his life into the work his father has given him to do. And in a sense, on this particular night, very, there is very little to show for it. The vast majority of his people have rejected him and his message. And now he will preach and teach no more. 
but he has handed the torch to these very plain, ordinary people and confidently believes that it is in good hands. He said to his father, I entrusted to them the message you entrusted to me. Christ had a profound faith in his followers. And I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you, and I want you to hear it, that he has that same kind of faith in you and in me. But we are the ones now that bear the responsibility of taking his message about his Father and declaring it to the world. That seems almost an incredible thing, doesn't it? We have great difficulty at times believing in each other, and much of the time we don't even believe in ourselves. How could it possibly be that Jesus, the Christ of God, would believe in us? But let's explore that question for a second and see. I want you to consider this, that Christ's faith in his followers is based on a thorough knowledge of them. He knew these men and women better than they knew themselves. And I want you to know that he knows us the same way. Some modern sage said it like this, it is strange that we mention so seldom the intelligence of Christ. We seem to notice everything else about him except the fact that here was history's supreme genius of common sense. Here was one who knew more about people than anyone has before or since. I don't know who said that, but I wish I had, for it reminds us of something about Jesus that we tend to forget. And I want you to think about this. Our lives, your life and mine, would be different, I think, if we could once learn and then keep in mind how well he knows you and me from top to bottom, from inside out. He knows everything about us that there is to know. I'm aware, I don't know whether you're like me, but you probably are, that this can at times be a disturbing thought. Every one of us knows something about himself or herself that we prefer not be known by others. We all have a skeleton or two hidden away in some secret closet, and it may be for the best that they remain hidden. I'm not suggesting that we, suggesting that we should stand up and bear our souls to the entire world. I'm simply saying that those secret closets are not secret 
to Christ. He knows where they are. He knows what is in them. We may conceal little corners of our lives from other people, but we can never hide any part of ourselves from him. There is no use pretending with Christ. He sees right through the sham and knows everything about us. But our thoughts on this subject should not end there. If he knows our worst, he also knows our best. And better yet, he knows our potential. When Jesus looked at people, he always saw not only what they were, but what they might become. In Simon the profane fisherman, he saw Peter, the spiritual rock. In Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector, he saw a generous and open philanthropist. In another tax collector named Levi, he saw a Matthew, a writer of one of the four Gospels. In John, the son of thunder, he saw John, the beloved disciple. The story goes on and on, all through the New Testament and out across the ages. Whenever and wherever Jesus looks at a person, he sees not only what he is, but what that person might become. The most real thing to his knowing eye is that person's potential. That is how he knows you and me. And that is why he has faith in you, because he knows you are potential. He knows our worst, but he knows our best. He knows our potential. He sees possibilities in every one of us that no one else has ever seen. Sometimes we as Episcopalians hear our prayer book so often that we don't think about the words especially the words to the opening Eucharist that, uh, you, that Heavenly Father, in you, the words say, we live and move and have our being. We are part of that reality. And nothing is hidden from him in that kind of relationship. Now, there's one step further that I want you to consider that Christ's faith in his followers is rooted in something called unconditional love. This, I'm convinced, after my 47 years of ministry, is one of the toughest things that most human beings uh, have as we enter relationship with our Lord for us to really believe. Somehow we can't get hold of that idea of unconditional love. At times we can partly believe that he loves us, but at other times it seems almost inconceivable because we have acted so unlovely at times and feel so unlovable. What we have never understood is that his love is in no way prefaced upon our behavior. Remember that the night Jesus prayed this prayer and expressed this faith in his followers 
was the same night that he told them of their infidelity. He told the entire group that they would turn their backs on him and run away in fear. Then he specifically told Peter, you remember, that before morning he would deny him three times. We've just been talking about how well he knows us, and he knew those followers were going to forsake him before it happened. Do you think he stopped loving them because of it? Not at all. He loved them before it happened. He loved them while it was going on. He loved them when it was over. His love for them was in no way contingent upon their loyalty. Someone may be sitting here today whose heart is hurting with guilt. Maybe someone is ashamed for something that has been done or something that has not been done. Do not think that Christ has stopped loving you because of that. His love for you has not wavered or changed one bit. I do not know how that makes you feel, but I know what it did to Peter. You remember? When he realized what he had done and when he remembered what Christ had told him, it broke his heart. And the record says he went out and wept bitterly. Christ would be easier to deal with, I think, at times, if he didn't love me so much. And maybe you might feel the same way. If, when we do wrong, we would go away and leave us, if he would go away and leave us, maybe we could go our way and forget all about him. But you know... He doesn't do that. He just goes right on loving us. The kind of love, that kind of love, is hard to deal with. What I'm trying to say to you is that Christ has faith in you. May it be that his unfailing faith in each of us will somehow inspire us to renew continually our faith in him. And we now move into that phase of this liturgy where we will stand together and take vows and renew our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.